and welcome back to another episode of the Puzzled Podcast. I'm Janessa Merrill, and I hope you're doing well. And if things are a bit rough, we have a great guest to help us navigate right through it. She's a psychotherapist, best-selling author of You, One, Anxiety Zero, a TEDx speaker, essentially helping shift the negative thinking, releasing the internal self-critic, which I definitely need help on, and hardwiring the brain for practical miracles, which is also the name of her helpful YouTube channel that gives tips dealing with stress, anxiety, all of it. She just released her new book, Anxiety, I'm So Done With You. Hi, Jody. How are you? How are you? Good. I'm doing I'm good. <laughs> yeah. I'm honestly pretty nervous. Well, I had a communications teacher and she said that being nervous uses the same nerves as excited. So I'm excited that you're here. And I've always been kind of afraid to speak to any therapist, which <laughs> this is pretty exciting. We're in t- I guess we're in an intimidating bunch. Well, I've just dealt with, you know, my personal own inner demons, let's call them. And a lot, it's come to the point where a lot of my friends have been like, just see a therapist, go do it. But instead, I got a podcast to unload in the most positive, healthy way. I love I, it. That's yeah. great. A therapist is not the only way to heal. It's just one tool. This is one option. And we're not all bad. Some, <laughs> of us, some of us are like the best cheerleaders that you could possibly have because we just see the good in you. We see your potential and we reflect that back and feels really good sometimes to go to a therapist. Yeah. And I've tried therapy, I guess, with people who aren't certified therapists, like youth mm-hmm. leaders or like close friends who just are like, you need to say it out loud. So what is your opinion on that using other people as a type of therapist in a way? Well, I think we need people, you know, people need people, we're social beings. And so a lot of times our healing could happen in all kinds of relationships. In fact, we need relationships to heal. We can't heal by yourself. And so be that a good friend, someone who loves you, a parent, a a caregiver, um, a mentor. There is a lot of places where we could have relationships that lift us up. Even a lover could could, could heal us on very deep levels. Uh, A therapist is trained in some specific ways to really help you pinpoint what's wrong. And and sometimes people don't have that experience and aren't able to do that, or they're well-meaning, or they're dealing with their own fear. They don't know how to separate their own feelings that come up from your feelings. And so there is some hazards there. But um, I don't think it's, it's, I don't think that means don't ever talk to a friend. Please keep talking to your friends. Please keep connecting to people. Find people around you that are uplifting. But if you want someone really specific, or if you're talking to friends and they're seeming just trying to fix your problem, or, you know, they're afraid for you or worried about you, then, you know, it takes you on a different path that's not necessarily helpful. They mean well. Yeah, so I don't know. It depends on the person, I guess. That's that's the answer. I mean, definitely I agree that everyone does need support because it helps. And, and like just to know that you're not alone, which is why I do like this podcast and having an outlet to share because even if I may not have the answer to it, it just lets someone else know that they're not alone in their experiences or feelings. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's so important. Sometimes the things inside our head are so much darker, uh, horrible, bad, scary. And when we say them out loud, it really relieves a lot of the pressure. That number one is because then we see other people feel them. We don't feel so crazy. It makes us feel like, you know, okay, we're not different than everybody. We, we're, we're the same. And that that's the healing in and of itself, you know? Yeah. 
So actually, let's start with this because I read that you did a TED Talk at a conference, which it's my dream to do it, which I have no clue what I would talk about yet. But, you know, someday I will. I'm manifesting right now. But what was that like? Were you nervous? And like- Oh, yeah. It's a different kind of talk because I, I could teach, you know, if, if I had to teach a full day. A workshop. I don't even have that much prep to do. But if you're te- if you can only talk for ten minutes and you have to get everything out, it takes so much longer. It took three months to prepare to wow. write and rewrite and rewrite and then memorize this talk because I speak extemporaneously in my videos and in my trainings and when I speak. And so this was a whole different thing for me is to try to mem- memorize a speech. It took me weeks to memorize it actually. Um, yeah. And, you know, anytime you do something, you think about things you do differently the next time, you know, that's just kind of a human thing we do, but, um, I'm really glad about the topic that I had. I think that's really interesting. It's very different. Uh, my title didn't really serve in getting me a lot of views, you know, with YouTube, the title is everything. And so I worked really hard to get a good title, but I missed on that, unfortunately. So, um, so yes, I had, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work trying to get the views up, but it's called, um, calm anxious kids with simple chores. So that's, um, it's a TEDx Wilmington. I did it and I knew, I knew, um, somebody who knew somebody and I don't know. Um, I, I, they helped me put a proposal together that would be a winning proposal. And I think that's number one. If you want to give a TEDx talk, you have to know about how to put a proposal together. And every conference, every TEDx conference is different in what they need. But uh, I think that was a real key for me is uh, knowing what to put on there that, that they wanted to hear. You just need one idea. Yeah. Well, you know, at first I had all these ideas in, in the chores thing was going to be one out of three. And, and someone gave me a good advice. My assistant at the time said, why don't you pick one of those three and just do it on that? And I picked it doing it on chores and it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. And how I see it, like when I watch all these TED Talk videos, it's like, wow, these people are so amazing. They're so accomplished like you. And it definitely is hard to just pick one topic and idea to like go with because of course there's a lot of things that, especially like you, there's a lot of things that are important to share it, but just picking one, I just can't imagine. Yeah. That, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. I'd like to do, actually I did apply since then to do a couple more talks. I think I would do one on forgiveness um, and on that negative self-talk in our head. I think there's other topics that I think are, are so needed, but yeah, I love, I love TEDx. I love the platform. I love that it's short and that people work so hard. So you get so much out of 10 minutes. You know, it's not just me putting a video up on 10 minutes where I'm, you know, talking it's, they're so crafted that you get so much out of them. So I I could just watch them all day. So you've been doing this for 20 years. Is that right? Yeah. Over 20 years. I'm not that old though. I was, I started when I was five. (laughs) No, I just, (laughs) I am that old. So what inspires you to continue doing it? Because I know like mental health, it is tough for a lot of us, especially with like depression and anxiety And when I read about it, like people posting like their symptoms and how they feel during panic attacks, it is overwhelming. So how, what inspires you to continue doing it and helping others? Well, I love it. I love it because I'm a witness and, and, you know, sometimes I describe my work as telling people how awesome they are all day because I could see it. And I think it's because my modality is narrative therapy. And so I notice it. it's trained me to listen for people's resilience 
to listen for the unique skills and their unique abilities and the connections they have with other people. And I'm constantly inspired by that. So yes, I'm listening to the problem. I don't ignore that or avoid it or anything, but I'm able to listen to these really horrible things that people experience, traumas and everything. And, but I'm also listening for this other storyline of their resistance and their love and their connection and their, um, and these unique ways that they survived it. And I'm amazed, you know, I could listen to people who've experienced trauma all day and I go home and I'm like, I'm inspired to love my kids better and to be more present with them and to laugh or something, because I know that those are the things that got people through a hard time. And that's the opposite of burnout. You know, we really burn out because we focus so much on that negative story, but there's so much other stuff going on. People are amazing. People are truly, truly amazing. And so um, if you're listening for that amazingness, which I am, and I think that's unique to narrative therapy, then um, then you're just a better person because of it and yeah, not burn out. Of course. And well, being a psychotherapist, are you almost expected to have a perfect mental health? Like we expect doctors, like they're always healthy because they're doctors. How has that pressure like affected your mental health as you're continuing doing this? Well, I'm human. So I, you know, I grew up in this Western culture too. So I, as a woman, you know, I, I deal with all the misogyny I deal with. Um, I deal with, you know, bad view of my body. I've, I've grown up in this kind of uh, way as well. So I have the same problems everybody else has. And that were that sense of belonging or just really this high desire to belong. And of course, when I was young, I was bullied. Uh, I tell my story in my books and I had anxiety for 20 years myself and really depressed and, you know, didn't want to live anymore. So I've experienced all of it myself. And, and what I, and, and I'm open about it. And I think that's why people are attracted to me and want to work with me because they, they understand that I get it. You could watch a video and you're like, how does she know what I feel? Uh, and so I think that makes me so relatable and, and, and helpful to people, but you know, I do the work. Like, so I have to practice what I preach, but I want to, I want to stay really grounded. I want to stay really connected. Uh, you know, I want to meditate and do those self-care things. We all know I want to get to bed early, you know, and eat really well because, yeah, I am a model in a lot of ways, right? I mean, I work with teenagers, so they're, they'll see right through it if I didn't, <laughs> didn't practice what I pe- preach, you know? I'm going to exercise, I'm going to eat right, I'm going to sleep well, and then I'm going to meditate, I'm going to do those things that we all know are really good for our emotional wellness, and then um, surround myself with good people. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, you know, it's not, it's not going to be perfect. I'm going to have hard times. I'm going to have loss. I'm going to have disappointment. Um I'm going to have days that I'm crabby, but it's how do I respond to those things? You know, do I respond with deep compassion for myself so that I could like feel the feelings and so they could let go? That's how I respond. I get over stuff very fast, Mm -hmm. but I'm still a human living in the world. And I still, I feel things really big. I'm very sensitive. So I feel things big, but I know how to have compassion, you know, right away all the time when we feel something right away, we start to judge it. Yeah, and that attaches us to it. That makes us like, it puts all this meaning around it. And um, yeah, and so I teach people this three-step process, actually. One is to have compassion for yourself first and, and, um, and then to take a step back. It's only when you have compassion, you could really take a step back and really understand what happened and all the players, why you responded and all that. And then the third step is then you could respond. 
but the compassion piece has to be first. And I think that's really changed everything for me in my life. Yeah. And like myself, I'm such a perfectionist and I'm really hard on myself all the time, which it is draining. So when I do go through like hard things, it's even more like, oh, you should have done this differently. You should have done that. And all these like different ways I could have reacted definitely takes a toll. And I always tell myself and tell my friends like, oh, don't stress over things you can't control. But also like make sure that you have a good mental or mindset basically to react to these things properly. Yeah, exactly. I, I, um, I think you'd really like my book because I think hopefully it breaks down perfectionism in the way that I wanted it to. And, and it, because it's a problem for so many people. I, mean, I don't know, is it cultural to, to be perfectionist in your family culture? You know, we learn it in our culture to that we have to be perfect. We have to do things right. And so yeah, we have to kind of deconstruct those things for ourselves so that we don't keep that legacy going, you know? Well, my friends and I have talked about um, in school, there's like a seminar program or gate program for kids who are excelling a little bit faster. So they put them at in these more stressful situations and keep exceeding those standards to make them better and smarter, which I think at such a young age, it's very hard to put on a kid. Like you have to continue to meet these goals. And once you're labeled like, oh, you're a gate kid, it's automatically like you're smart and you just don't want to drop that standard, of course, especially letting your parents know. So, right, right. It's like you're on a pedestal. Yeah. It's very lonely up there, isn't it? (laughs) So for over 20 years, how have you seen mental health change and what impacts it? Because I know with social media, everyone says like it makes it more complicated. And I think social media is a blessing and a curse, but since there's more advocates out there for mental health and instead of acting like you did this yourself just be happy you chose to be sad how has social media really affected it like from your perspective well this is these are the things I talk about my TEDx talk actually because I think it it affects us so much you know I see such a difference happening with the younger people with generation z because they're on their devices and what divides up the millennials from the generation z is that they had a smartphone from when they were uh, a lot younger. So millennials, they, they were like upper high school, like graduating and in college before they all had smartphones. And Generation Z have had them, you know, since seventh grade or at least all through high school. Then where they had that in the palm of their hands, they had access to thousands and thousands of messages a day. There's just more access to get these messages out. And these are, um, you know, commercialism, you know, coming through like uh, trying to sell things. And it's like, well, why is that bothering your mental health trying to sell things? Well, it does because, you know, we're losing the, um, we're losing the idea of just cause and effect, you know? So, so we, first of all, we passively watch things all the time. So we're not, we don't have to do anything to receive that. We could just get that. And then, you know, companies are like, you have to buy, get this because it's cool. You deserve it. You want it. You should just get it. And you lose the fact that you have to work for something to be able to get it because company that doesn't sell things. So they're not going to, they're not going to encourage that But because we have it constantly. And we used to have it for like two hours a night, a couple of minutes between our between commercial breaks or in commercial breaks in our shows. Like we didn't have that many commercials. Now it's everywhere all the time. So that's, it's so multiplied. 
And then there's virtual trauma. You know, we see these dangerous situations that are happening very far away. They feel really, really random. A lot of times they're not random, but they feel so random that it's scary. So our anxiety is, is raising because we feel so out of control. There's no cause and effect. And then also there's the comparison. Like we, you know, with social media and with all this pop culture, it's increased tenfold or more. And uh, we compare ourselves to everybody all the time. And we compare our backstage mess <laughs> to people's highlight reel. And that's not real at all. And so we, um, so we always are going to come out as inadequate. And again, there's no cause and effect. Like, it just seems like they're just happy. They're just lucky. They had all this stuff and we don't have it. You don't see anything before that filtered picture. You know, and it just feels like the filtered picture is just plopped in and that's all there is, you know? Yeah. Comparison is especially hard because also people do like edit and alter just so that they put their best self on social media. And I remember being younger, I didn't have a phone to like look at all these celebrities or people I admired. We had to like go to the store, buy a magazine and see their best version of themselves, which at that point, it's like, oh, they're a celebrity, so I can't compare myself because they're on a magazine. But all of us using the exact same platform, it's like, what am I doing wrong? We're all here, so why do I not look like them? Yeah, right. Now it's just regular people, so it's not, you know, there's there's not that degree of difference. Yeah. So your newest book, which at the time this is uploaded, it will be out already, but the title is honestly so cute. Anxiety, I'm so done with you. It's a teen's guide, which I'm 20 and I'm going to be honest, it's like really rough right now, but this book includes journal prompts, which is so great. But what made you want to like target teens and write this book? Well, uh, my other book, You Want Anxiety Zero is, um, you know, I've had teenagers read it, you know, so from age 13 and up, they re- they could read that book. It's, there's concepts they understand, but I work with teens for so long. And I think that they're very, spe- it's a very special situation right now, you know, suicide rate rising with anxiety. A lot of college professors are like, what do we do? These kids are so anxious. I, we, we don't even know what to do. It's they, it definitely things are changing for this generation, this generation Z. And so I wanted to write something specifically for them. And so I, I like metaphors. I use them a lot in my work. So it's a, you know, the metaphor is a breakup because anxiety is like a bully, you know, it's like a toxic relationship we're in. We have toxic stress going on all the time. So the subtitle of the book is a teen's guide to ditching toxic stress and hardwiring your brain for happiness. Because I think that you know, anxiety, I'm so done with you. You know, that is the exasperation that we all feel because anxiety, just the suffering is so horrible and it's unnecessary, but we put all this meaning around like we're different and we're weird and why everybody has anxiety nowadays. Like everybody has anxiety. And so, but we all are experiencing it in our own head. And though because teens are hard because, you know, a 13 year old and 20 year old, that's a huge difference. And so how do you write for that span? But, um, but what I decided to do is just not put swear words in the book. I know college students probably would prefer to have swear words to, cause that's more relatable, but, um, but I, you know, I know parents are going to buy the book. And so I decided to leave that out, but I really think adults 
could could benefit from this book. Um, so it, it speaks easily enough for a 13 year old, but I, I think even adults are going to get this book and get so much out of it because anxiety works on all of us the same way. Uh, so maybe I have some pop culture references that that are good for you know Gen Z. Um, it's good for someone at any age, but I really picture college students reading it. And before COVID, I was going to do a whole speaking thing at all different colleges. <laughs> I don't know what that's going to look like now, but um, but I really think college students are, are really suffering huge right now. So high school, college students, those are what I'm aiming the book for. I think that's a big problem during this, during this time. When I was in college, it was honestly one of my lowest points. Like, it's for a lot of people, it's their first time away from home and just that. And along with trying to make new friends and putting yourself in a new environment, it's very overwhelming. And at least the college I went to, there was of course resources for mental health, but it wasn't like put out there and exploited and made sure like, of course they had some days, oh, you can like pet a dog, like therapy dogs are out there. But of course that's not enough. And also like people that I've talked to who had like social anxiety, it was hard for them to like go to these groups and like like loose and de-stress because of other people there. So I think if we just educate ourselves in like reading books like this and making sure like, oh, other people are going through this and really understanding what anxiety is, then I think it could help us all better like cope with it. Absolutely. Because, you know, these kids are coming into college not really being in touch with their skills and abilities. Because we didn't learn cause and effect, we're not connected with the skills that we have in life. And our anxiety is so big because we think we can't handle anything because we think we have no skills. And so this book is going to show you the skills that you have, show you the potential you have, empower you to have those things. Because we feel so out of control and powerless in our life. And it's not true. We have so much control and so much power that we just don't even see. And because of these messages constantly that tell you you're powerless and out of control and worthless, we think that's true. And so the anxiety is like a big bully, a big liar telling us that we can't and we really, really can. And so, and, you know, I'd love to take anxiety like out of the mental health sphere because it's something that anyone could get and it's something you can get rid of. Um, I mean, I understand why it's in the mental health thing because it's, you know, it's mental. It's like, it's, it's an emotional and mental reaction, but it's also biological. And so we really need to understand it. And once you understand it, man, there's no stopping you. You could do everything, you know, once you realize, oh my gosh, I have mad skills. I mean, we just don't notice it. We see all our deficits. We see all our inadequacies. Those are all like beacons for our attention and all the while we're doing all these things, which are quite amazing, but we don't notice any of those things. And so this is what I'm trying to reverse. I'm trying to bring the attention to how awesome people are, you know? So it says this book has journal prompts, which my personal problem that kind of makes my life hard is that for the past five years, I've been like trying to scavenge for a proper outlet to put these thoughts. Like I mentioned, I have this podcast now, but I, before I tend to invalidate my feelings or push them away and keep going until I have like a full breakdown, which is not healthy at all. But I think it's great providing these prompts because I just want to stress how important it is to just let all those feelings out rather than continuing to hide them. So what was your purpose for putting these prompts in the book right there? Yeah. So when the publishing company came to me and asked for this book, they wanted a workbook. 
you know, so they wanted a workbook. I didn't want the word workbook on there because I'm, my daughter is 16 now, but she was 15 last year. And she said, work, we don't want to do any more work. <laughs> so I didn't really want that to be, but you know, I mean, when you have a publishing company, they have to do that. So that's why we call that a teen's guide. Um, but the, the exercises are tried and true. There's something that I've worked with with people for 20 years. You know, I got over my own anxiety doing these things. And then for the last 20 years, I've helped thousands of clients get over their anxiety. So these things work actually. And the power of writing is that we become a witness to ourselves. So it gives us some distance. So not only that, not only we get it out, that's an important part of it. You know, get it off your chest, you get it out, but also you also gives you the ability to, to separate or take a, like a psychic step back from the problem and witness yourself. And from there, our whole perspective changes when we do this, when we get that distance. And actually I've been helping people in therapy constantly I'm helping them get into this stream of consciousness where they'll become a witness of themselves. It is so regulating into our nervous system and helping us heal from trauma or, um, or anxiety or any kind of thing. And so it's a powerful tool. Writing is a powerful tool. So I, I do encourage people to actually write stuff down and it really is helpful. Yeah. I think it's so helpful. I've taken a creative writing class in the past and how my teacher explained it when we have to like do all these free writes or write short stories. He said to basically just let it all out of your head. And if you do like deal with depression or anxiety and you see it written out, then you could see like, oh, your anxiety is an actual thing. And it's not that big. Like you can take care of it because you can explain what it is. And it's not this thing that's super vague and that you don't know about or how to begin to deal with it. Yeah. It's excellent. Excellent. Good advice. <laughs> Honestly, I've pretty much like self-diagnosed myself because I've been dealing with like so many mental health things for a while, for sure with like depression, anxiety, like eating disorders is a byproduct. But what is your take on self-diagnosis? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, I yeah, I don't I don't have too much of an opinion about it because I I like to think of the, these things as a descriptor instead of a diagnosis or a label. You know, we could say call something an anxiety disorder, or we could use anxiety as a, as a description for what you're feeling. And it's actually when it's a description for what you're feeling, then you ha can have a relationship with it. You could change it. It's it's like flexible. It's not limited. When you have a label, it puts some limits on it. You know, to label yourself as having an anxiety disorder, like there's no wiggle room or nothing to change. So I really like to put the small A on anxiety. I like to put the big A because I'm. I'm like personify it. You know, I like to personify anxiety because it's like a bully and we like to talk to it. That's what I, you know, you could see that in both of my book titles, right? Anxiety, I'm so done with you. Like addressing it head on, like it's a separate entity because I want to take it out of ourselves. You know, it's like, I am anxious. It's like part of our identity, but it's, it's not, it doesn't serve you that way. So immediately in my titles, I'm taking it outside your identity. So I think that, the, the self-diagnosis is an interesting question because a lot of people ask me on these podcasts, like, how do you know if you have anxiety or if you don't have anxiety? And I'm like, and how do you know, really what they're asking is, how do you know if you need help? And this is the answer to that is if you are suffering, if you're suffering, there's help out there, right? You could have a little of anxiety, a medium anxiety, a lot of anxiety. It doesn't matter. Like you don't have to suffer anymore. Anxiety is highly treatable in any stage. So you don't have to like cross a certain line to have a quote anxiety disorder to then get help. 
if you're suffering, if it's stopping you from living your life to your full potential, do something about it. Don't live like that. You know, people wait one to three years. I think it's like three to 10, actually. I said that wrong. Three to 10 years before they get help with their anxiety because they think it's their fault. They don't know if they have it bad enough. I mean, it's, it's such a mysterious problem. Yeah. We call it all different things. We really don't know what it means. So if you see a program online that says this is for, you know, calm your anxiety, you don't know if that's for people with anxiety disorders or people who have regular anxiety. I mean, we don't even understand. <laughs> we don't even understand what this means, you know? And so that's why it's a weird problem, but, um, but it's so fixable. It's so fixable. And so come on, come over. I have so many resources for people. It's not even funny. So I want them to have all of it. Yeah. And looking back now, how I see it, it's more of like bad habits that I've developed because I know I dealt with like some eating disorder, but when I fall back into those bad habits, like shaming set myself to not eat like a small snack, I catch myself and I'm like, oh, you need to stop doing that. Like, it's okay. You can do it. But what is there? I think all of us are just trying to figure out like, how do we identify these things before it is too late or what is considered like too small of a problem or like too little or too big? Like how could we have avoided a full blown mental breakdown in the beginning? Well, I think that's it. It's like that, that we keep questioning. Is this, is this regular anxiety or is this like anxiety disorder? This is just a waste of time to try to figure that out. If you're suffering, if it's, if it's stopping you at any time in your life, you could get help from it for it. Like people come to me in all kinds of stages. Some people wait way too long to come. And there's no reason, like you don't have to have some qualification to be able to get help. If, if you're having trouble eating, there's tons of resources out there. If you're having trouble sleeping, there's tons of resources out there. You don't always have to go to a counselor. There is other ways to do it. If you're, if you're self if you have a problem with self-esteem or too much self-doubt, there's tons of resources out there. And so, um, yeah, it's like, I think that's the biggest message that I have right now is like, stop suffering. Like <laughs> there's something, why suffer just because you're not sure if it's bad enough. Um, I yeah. think that's the biggest problem that we have is we're like, I don't know if, yeah, I've done this to myself before. You know, I had a big wart on my foot. I know it's kind of funny, but I had this big wart on the bottom of my foot. And it got to the point that my knees were swollen because I walked funny. And, um, you know, I was limping around so much that my knees started to swell up. And I always was like, I'm healthy. I'm healthy. Like, I'm so glad I'm healthy. And I never really thought of myself as sick from this wart on my foot. You know what I mean? Or like that I needed help healing or something like that. I think that's what we do a lot of times with anxiety. We think, well, I'm so lucky people have it worse. People have it worse. And, and we just live with it. And one day I was like, wait a minute, I don't need this wart on my foot. And like, I started to, you know, um, do use medicine to get rid of it. And it was gone in two weeks when I decided like, I didn't deserve this anymore. <laughs> I had it for like nine months. Wow. Finally, I was like, wait a minute. I don't, I could prioritize my own healing and I got rid of that warrant in two weeks because I decided I'm not going to live like this anymore, you know? And I think people could do that with their anxiety, actually. I just think that's so funny because when this whole pandemic happened, I had like my, I finally had a, like a full-time job that was paying well. And then I got laid off. And mm -hmm. then I was like, 
you know what people have it so much worse and this is not that serious like I'm not going to victimize myself and a lot of my friends were telling me like no your feelings are valid like you have the every right to feel that way like you don't need to be in a way worse situation but like this is your situation right now and you're not feeling good about it like take care of yourself <laughs> yeah it's like we don't want to think negatively but we can ha- we the, but then we eliminate the compassion piece yeah. you know we're so afraid to think negatively because we think that that's wrong or not evolved or something like that and it's that's bs because it's very evolved to have compassion for yourself it's incredibly healing it's involved it's it's like um you know the higher level spiritual people that are have total compassion for themselves and that's how they heal you know i mean that we were talking about that at the beginning like how do i keep myself good I have so much self-compassion when I feel bad. Um, and it's not like I'm prioritizing my problems over other people's problems, but it's a way that I get through them faster. So if you allow yourself to feel, then you don't stay in the negative, actually. It's like we reverse it. We like don't want to feel, so we're like, I can't do this. And, and that judgment actually is worse for our mindset. You know, we're, we're actually in the negative again, trying not to be in the negative. It's you know, we kind of we get in our way a lot, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> so that's how I viewed was like positive thinking and how I kept positive, but I didn't realize like that's pretty negative thinking of to think like that. So what is a way well, you're going to like my book too? Cause I talk about that, like this, this like pressure that we have on ourselves to always think positive. Like, so there's these extremes of like, you know, I can't remember what I call it, but like, there's this like spiraling negativity. And then there's this false positivity that, you know, that we're like, neither of those are okay. (laughs) It's not one of the, it's not black and white. It's not one or the other. Like it's, there's so much in between there that you could be. So what is actually positive thinking? Because if we don't victimize, or if we were like, no, don't victimize yourself, that it's not really taking care of yourself and being compassionate to yourself. So what is more a positive way to respond to things like that? I think victim mentality like makes us really want to blame, either blame ourselves or blame other people. And we kind of have this conflict in our head while we're doing both blaming ourselves and blaming other people and defending ourselves. And, you know, I mean, it, that's where we could caught and we do a lot of suffering and self-compassion is completely different. It's just like, I feel this way. Oh, I understand. That person hurt me. I understand why I feel this way. It's not really a victimhood. It's like there's acknowledgement that there's hurt feelings. And when there's the acknowledgement that there's hurt feelings, there's a validation there. And then there's no attachment. What happens is in the victim mentality is you're attaching to it. So you feel bad, but then you judge yourself for feeling bad. Then you have to defend yourself for feeling bad. Then you judge yourself again for feeling bad. You know, there's attachment. You attach your your attention and your energy to that. And that's where you stay stuck. So that's negative. But thinking positively doesn't mean you don't feel negative feelings or like uh, stress or hurt. You feel that sadness, but you have compassion for that sadness. And it's the opposite. So compassion is the opposite of self-judgment. When you judge, you hook yourself on it. That's attachment. And when you have compassion, there's nowhere to hook. Yeah. Like just, it doesn't attach anywhere. So it's there, but then it kind of just floats away pretty fast. Like, you know, and so that's, that's the difference is, and, and then there's space for then having gratitude and those kind of things. 
But when you, when you're a victim and you try to have gratitude, you're kind of blaming yourself for not having gratitude. You know what I mean? You get caught in it and that's not necessarily helpful. Um, yeah. I mean, I see that with a lot of people that, you know, someone hurts their feelings and they want to just be more spiritually evolved and they want to um, be able to not take it personally. You have to have compassion. Then you could take a step back. Then you can't, then you take, you know, then you don't take it personally. First. We're missing those first steps. Like we mentioned earlier, there is cultural differences when it comes to mental health. And I've always been an emotional kid, but like me with a lot of Asian, other Asian families, mental health is something parents don't really prioritize or don't take acknowledgement of. Because when I was younger, if like I was just feeling all sorts of different emotions, my mom was just telling me like, oh, if you need to like lock yourself in your room and like let it all out over there and project, not project on others. But other times it's like when I feel burnt out, empty or cry and like not knowing to describe what I feel parents or like Asian parents at least are like, you're such a drama queen. Like it's not that serious. So a kid going through all of this, whose responsibility is it to reach out and ask ways to fix it? Is it like more of the parent or the kid to like take initiative? Like, this is what I feel and I need help. Well, yeah, this is such a, I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, it's such a, um, it's such a big thing. Like there's so much conditioning, right? That being upset is unsafe, you know? So culturally, if you're upset, then people criticize you or it's unsafe or um, it's dishonoring or whatever it is. And so there's these cultural things that we're up against that, that, um, that, you know, our parents meaning well teach us because they want you to stay safe in the world. Right. And um, the world's changed a little bit, but there's still a bit of unsafety to being open about your emotions because there's still that so much fear about it that people who are open about their emotions sometimes do get put down. And so, um, and so, yeah, so the younger people are more open about their emotions. So yeah, you, you see that in, you said, like you said, Asian families, but I think there's probably a lot of other cultures that a similar thing is happening, especially if they're minority cultures and they're uh, victimized anyway, you know, by, um, by white supremacy, like putting them down. I mean, the, the, um, it's, it's, you know, the, they're, we have to, they're conditioned to be even more careful because they, um, because of the dangers that are out there. I think that's really important for us to see. And it's going to take young people to really dismantle that or, or try to deconstruct some of that so they know that they can get help, that there is some safe places and, and realize that there's going to be some places that are not as safe. And so how to distinguish where is it safe to be able to do this and where is it not safe to be able to do this and what's making it not safe and could we challenge that in some way? Um, I think times are really changing, aren't they? I mean, <laughs> so uh, it's a big topic right now. And, and um, yeah, so it's like, so for, for you, you're so young, and, but you have to step into your sovereign power to be like, okay, I understand why you're feeling this way. So you can have compassion for your mom and, and, um, and, and then be like, but that's, that, that doesn't serve us as a whole, you know, yeah. it doesn't serve me. It doesn't serve anyone in my race. Like, do I want to stop that legacy and how could I do it? for myself and maybe my future generations in a safe way, like what kind of things need to happen in the world? It's a tricky question. (laughs) 
I mean, I see it like looking back, it's definitely when you watch movies or things, it's a lot of the times like preteens or teens just always feel misunderstood where parents couldn't possibly help them. So when I was going through, it's like, yeah, I get it now that my parents just don't understand what I'm going through. And for like a lot of young people who may have to take matters into their own hands, like, or especially first dealing with this, where's the right place to start improving like emotional wellness, mental health? general. I think for those self-care things that we all know about, you know, we, we, those are, there's, there's a bit of universal, universalness and even across, um, cultures and races that, you know, sleep, eating well, um, exercising and meditation, you know, really goes through, it, it are things that really help ground us being connected by uplifting people with uplifting people. These are things that are on every like happiness research project or longevity research project around the world have these things at the top of what people do to, to be happy in their life. And so, um, you know, while we're kind of trying to change the world and make the world a better place for ourselves and for everybody, we really need to stay centered and do these things of self-care so that we're supported through it. You know, have people around us that lift us up, meditate, sleep well, eat well, exercise. Those are all over the place. Every research project you could look at is really important for our emotional wellness. Yeah. And I think young people now are so lucky to have like influencers who do advocate for mental health because back then I was like self-care, like doing a face mask probably, or like sleeping in early, like eating right. I always thought that was like, oh, they're so high maintenance, like super pampered. Like I can't possibly do that. So I think it's great that all these influencers are like, no, please take care of yourself. And I don't, they're open about like, I don't do this every single day, but if I do want to take care of myself, this is what I do because we usually have the idea that whatever they're doing, like a face mask, it's, super high maintenance and that we don't want to be like that because we were actually productive and want to do other things. Yeah. I, you know, I think when you're looking, looking at these things to, to keep yourself grounded, to keep yourself connected, you just want to pick one at a time and just commit to one. And one, some, one of my teachers told me once that the best thing you could do for your self-esteem is to commit to something to do every day. And it could be a five minute activity, whatever it is. So if you commit to like sitting with a candle or breathing for five minutes a day and you do it every day, then you're going to be able to depend on yourself. You know, you're going to do something you put your mind to, right? So your self-esteem, your self-confidence is going to build. That's the single best thing that we could do to build our confidence is commit to one thing a day. And so if we try to do all the things, it's overwhelming. It doesn't work. We have to change our habits gradually. It's like that you have a lifetime (laughs) to do everything. And so all you have to do is like, try one thing, you know, try one thing, like get up a little bit earlier. So you go to bed a little earlier or, or eat an extra vegetable every day, like one extra vegetable a day, like try something little like that to start. It doesn't have to be change your whole life. Everything top to bottom. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So your YouTube channel is called Practical Miracles, which I think is so funny because how I see miracles, especially like in Christian household, it's like the impossible. But explain more what is that practical miracles, like it's more tangible type of thing or like little steps that we can to change our life. 
Yeah, they are the little steps, but they're also tangible steps. You know, I think a lot of people like me as a teacher because my steps are really like, it's not like, okay, everyone just let go, you know, or, or you got to forgive and just set the intention. Like I actually tell people how to do it, exactly what to do so that they know like those practical steps, but these things make such huge changes in our life. Like being able to let go of something from the past or it's something our minds hooked on, well, is a miracle because it really changes like your heart, your soul. It changes every day after that. It changes your relationships all for the better. Like don't get scared of the change. But, you know, um, if we go outside and, you know, put an offering outside our door, like a flower on our doorstep every day, like some cultures do. What does that change? Because you're thinking before you do everything in the day about gratitude. It totally changes your mindset for the rest of the day. And miracles come out of that. Miracles of that, that that's how we hardwire our brain for happiness. And when you do that, it's, you know, people think that some people are happy and then some people aren't happy. And the happy people are just lucky. But really what's real is like happy people, they generate their own happiness. You know, the people are not just lucky and just happy. They do something every day. That is a miracle right? They, they get the benefits of those steps that they take, these practical steps. That's the miracle I'm talking about. But sometimes people relieve like their physical pain. You know, most of our physical pain comes from tension in our body, from that constriction, from holding ourselves in. If we have emotional wellness and we open ourselves up, you can have miraculous healing because your back pain goes away or your shoulder pain goes away because you're not so holding in all the, that energy. Does this go more into like manifesting? Because a lot of times, well, I hear that the steps to manifest is you just put it out there in the universe and let it go, but you continue to work on it and you believe you already have it. Is that something that's real or like something that works? Yeah, I I think, um, you know, I mean, I've studied law of attraction just like everybody else has. And I think that there's a lot of mystery there that people don't really understand it. Because it's like what you expect, you know, so because if you expect, if you don't expect anything good to happen, then you don't take the steps to make anything good happen. If you don't expect, like a lot of people think that they can't get over their anxiety because people have told them it's something you have to have forever and you just have to learn to manage it. Unfortunately, mental health professionals told them that or doctors have told them that. And it's, it's not true. But if you think that you can't get over your anxiety, then you're not going to do anything to get over it. You have to believe that you could get rid of it to take some action. So we really take actions about what we expect to happen. And so if we expect good things to happen, then we're going to follow that up with the actions to make those good things happen. If we don't expect it, then we're not going to, you know, my friend's like, I don't think I'll ever meet anybody. So they're not out there. They're not putting themselves out there trying to meet anybody because you just have no expectation it's going to work. Why try? Yeah. And so I think that stops a lot of people. I think that's the difference. I don't use the word manifesting. It's just not something in my vocabulary because it's like set intentions and then uh, take action. I'm, I'm a real action taker, you know? Yeah, But I think that's what people mean when they use that word manifesting. It's not a problem word for me. I just don't use it because it doesn't, it just doesn't resonate with me, but, um, but I get it. And, and I think it's really beautiful. Well, honestly, I've learned a lot from, just from our talk and I consider myself very new, especially dealing with mental health. And I think I took it way more seriously 
after like my first panic attack, but it is something that I wish we all learned in school, even like elementary school, just like the little things, because as a kid, it's like, oh, why am I crying so much? But it's obviously like these other things that are bigger than my like head that never heard of these words. And I think that we definitely need to change that, especially like I remember that they would separate like the boys and girls and like teach the girls about like periods and all that. But overall, we all need to like make sure everyone's mental health is good, especially like pushing these kids to middle school where things are just continuously getting tougher and especially like leading to college. I hope that I hope I could get this book in schools. I hope this could be a part of a health curriculum. That's that's one of my goals and hope. Um, I'm so busy. I haven't really um, started to make that happen, but I'm going to be working on that really hard this summer to try to get this book into some health curriculums and spread it and spread it and spread it. But I really would like everything that you've said. I really would love you to read this book because it's going to be, I think it's going to change your life. (laughs) So as we're ending, what are words that you live by? Well, I, you know, I want to say like, people have so much more potential than they know that they have. They're so much more awesome than they know that they are. And I guess I have to listen to that myself too, so that I could believe it. And then I could continue to take those actions to, um, to make that happen. And um, I think that's where, you know, my belief firmly lies. Like I think people have potential and, and you could feel that when you're around me, I feel like, you know, that's why my clients heal so quickly. Like it's happening at this metaphysical level because they're there and I believe in them so much. And it, and it like passes over to confidence that they have in themselves. And so it's really powerful. But yeah, but I have so many resources. So like send everyone over jodyeman.com and and I'd love to help you out because no one has to suffer anymore. <laughs> yeah, I honestly have like a new perspective to like on life. And I hope everyone else did learn a few things to adopt into their life. And of course, like all those little habits, it takes like, I think 21 days to adopt a new habit. And of course, all of her links will be in the description. Check Jody out and all the teens out there pick up her new book or order, I should say, today. So thank you guys for listening and I hope to talk to everyone soon.